Amen, brothers and sisters. He is worthy of our praise, and we should go to him in prayer. Please be seated as I pray. Please bow with me. Father, earlier in the service, we asked the question, are you worthy? Is there anyone worthy? And Father, absolutely what we find in your word and in who you say that you are, Father, we confess, we rejoice at the fact that you are indeed worthy. You are worthy of every ounce of our praise. Lord, as Brother Ken prayed so mightily. Father, there are so many times when we don't act like you are worthy of praise. So, Father, this morning, remind us of how worthy of our praise you are. Help us to worship in spirit and truth this morning. Help us to give and ascribe glory and majesty to the only one who deserves it, to you, our great triune God. Father, it's amazing that in your triune nature, you are completely praiseworthy in every person whether it's God the Father who created all things and has given us his mighty word just through giving it because he's gracious, or whether it's because of Jesus the Son who's worthy of praise because he incarnated amongst sinful beings, or whether it's because of the Holy Spirit who now indwells in those who have faith in Jesus and helps us to have peace and helps us to walk alongside of you and helps us to magnify who you are. Father, you are absolutely worthy of praise in your triune nature. You show complete unity. You show complete perfection. And Lord, now you call your local churches, churches like this one, like South Canyon Baptist Church, to show that same glory so that it may point to you. So Lord, we do ask that in this church, at South Canyon Baptist Church, that you would keep us unified. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of unity. Father, we recognize that there is nothing in ourselves that would give us unity, but only everything in who we believe Jesus to be and because of the working of the Holy Spirit in us. Father, we rejoice at the gift of unity. And Father, I pray that for us as a church, we would try and that we would endeavor to keep and to preserve that unity in the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, in light of that, we pray not only for the unity that we have, but the unity that we see and that we have amongst other churches. So this morning, Father, we pray as we do from time to time here, we pray for other churches in our area. And this morning, Father, I want to pray for Connection Church and Spearfish. Father, we thank you so much for that congregation. We thank you because they are brothers and sisters of ours within our similar convention of churches. But, Father, we also thank you that they are laboring for the gospel in an area that means so much to us. Father, we are so thankful for their pastor, John Ballard, and just ask, Lord, that you would work in him. That, Father, you would help him to preach your word even now in this very moment, clearly, and in a way that would present Jesus Christ, Father. And we pray that if there is anybody at Connection Church Spearfish that does not know you, that they would know you today through the preaching of your word. Father, thank you for our brothers and sisters there. And we ask that you would work in that ministry for days to come. And Father, as our minds turn not just to Christians that we are unified in this land with, but Father, we turn now to Christians in other lands. Father, this month is... Persecuted Christians Month, a time to remember and to pray for those persecuted Christians. So, Father, we do that now. 
We pray for those brothers and sisters who live in lands who are not able to gather. We pray for those brothers and sisters who are under the threat of death for gathering in your name because of what they believe about Jesus Christ and what he has done. Father, we praise you because you have preserved and you have held fast to those believers. And Father, we pray that you would hold fast to them, that you would work in them, that you would strengthen them, help them to endure, Father. And God, we pray that for ourselves, we would be quick to pray for those brothers and sisters who are unjustly and unfairly persecuted because of believing that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, be with them, comfort them, strengthen them. Father, as we turn now back to ourselves, we pray that you would bear fruit in your word. Lord, you've shown us, as we've sang, God, that you are worthy of our praise. So, Father, show us that you are worthy of our praise in your word this morning. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth as we dive into your text this morning. Help me to communicate only what is of you. And ultimately, God, we pray that you would use this word to draw people to yourself more. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone. Uh, This is the last sermon I'm preaching in the book of Philippians. So you're going to want to turn to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 9 in Philippians chapter 4, and you can find that on 982 in those Blue Pew Bibles. Here at South Canyon, every week we preach God's Word. We are aiming to communicate the main idea of the text. What the author has intended in the text, that is what we aim to communicate as preachers of God's Word. And so week after week, no matter who's up here, we are striving to do that. And so this morning we are going to be looking at Philippians 4, 1 through 9, And I want to first ask you a question as we begin thinking about this text. What do you do when danger comes your way? Our responses are ultimately varied in how we encounter danger and what we do in response to it. But scientists usually typify our response to dangerous stressors as either fight or flight. We either move to action to defend ourselves or we move to action to flee and to remove ourselves from that potentially dangerous situation. And I'm sure, like me, you all have thought about, what would I do if there was ever a threat to my life? What would I do in response to a dangerous situation that would potentially take my life? Many people have thought about that very scenario and have signed themselves up for classes, for things like self-defense classes and mixed martial arts and things of uh, that sort. But I wonder if if those of you who have ever taken those classes, or maybe you've thought about taking those classes, I wonder what your response would be if you went into a class like that and an instructor said, all right, this is the best way to defend yourself. 10 out of 10 times, this will work 100% of the time. All you need to do is just stand there. Wait, wait, wait. Like, do I even, like, do I need to get in the defensive stance or anything like that? No, no, no. Just stand there. Whoa, wait, wait, hold on. What if, like, they're going to, like, throw a punch at me? Do I need to, like, get my hands up, anything like that? No, just, just stand there. Well, I, what if they're, like, really, really dangerous? Do I at least, like, get in the fetal position, something? No, just stand there. You'll be fine. I'm sure if you heard that, you'd immediately leave the class, right? You'd say, I want my money back. There's no way that this is the best way to defend myself. I think most of us understand and think that if there's an impending threat on my life, I need to do something. 
I don't just need to stand there. Well, in our text this morning, in his last bit of instruction for the Philippian church, Paul gives some advice that seems truthfully counterintuitive, much like just standing there in a defense class. He gives some counterintuitive advice, some counterintuitive instruction, and tells them, this is what you ought to do in certain situations. And it seems not realistic. It seems really, really difficult. And upon examination of the passage, I think we're going to find for us as well, as Christians in the 21st century here in Rapid City, the instructions he gives are not necessarily our instincts. Just as they wouldn't have been the instincts for the Philippian church in the first century, it would have been the same for us as well. We're going to find that they're counterintuitive. So with that said, why don't we read Philippians 4, beginning in verse 1, and I'll be reading through verse 9. Please read along with me. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I think in many ways, this section is the last bit of exhortation that Paul is giving to this church. It's the last kind of instruction that he wants to give to them. And I think Paul's thoughts here can be summarized as this, which will serve as the main idea of our passage this morning. I think it will be this. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord, and he will give you peace. I think the thing that Paul wants you to walk away from in this passage is that if you stand firm in the Lord, he will give you peace. And I think as the text breaks down, and we're going to get into this a little bit more into the weeds here in a moment, I think there's three areas in our life, three places, three locations, if you will, that we will have peace if we stand firm in the Lord. And we're going to have peace in our church, peace in our worry, and peace in our minds. Now, what I'm not saying here is that we'll just naturally have peace. We have to be standing firm in the Lord. We're going to be getting into that. But ultimately, if we stand firm in the Lord, we will have peace peace in those three different areas. And don't worry, I'll come back to that for you note takers. Before we get into those places where he does give peace, it's important to recognize that the overall, the overall instruction, imperative command that he is giving is to stand firm thus in the Lord. What that means is, is that everything that follows after that particular commandment is just a building block on how you can do that. Stand firm in the Lord by coming to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We're going to be getting into that a little bit more. But everything is a summary statement right at the beginning. It's the bottom line, if you will. Stand firm thus in the Lord, and he will give you peace. 
And I think in some way, verse 1 does act like a summary statement for Paul to this church. It's, my friends, whom I love and whom I long for, stand firm in the Lord. My beloved brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. You can really tell in verse 1 in just that language that he uses. My brothers whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown. Paul loves this church. And I love this church. So I'm trying to get that tone out. This is something that we, as a church, must understand. I love you. You need to understand that if we are to do any of these things that Paul lists in the rest of the passage, brothers and sisters, beloved friends, we must stand firm thus in the Lord. That is the commandment today. Stand firm in the Lord. This could be for Paul the very last opportunity, the very last time that he will ever give this church instruction. It's going to probably be the last time. This was written about 62 AD. He dies potentially 64 to 67 AD. This is probably the last time that Paul will ever say anything to this local body of believers because of his impending potential death, of sharing the very faith that he communicated with him whenever this church began. This is the last bit of instruction. In some ways, I've heard it put like this. Whenever people are on their deathbed and they're saying certain things, certain instructions to their loved ones, that's when you really need to listen. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. What he's saying here is really important. And I think it's kind of fleshing out what he's been getting at in the whole book up to this point. And for this church, they are going to have so many different things coming at them. I think Paul foresees all of the potential trials, potential sufferings, and he says, this is what you need to do. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Because the only way that you are going to be able to have real peace, Philippian church, about all these circumstances, is by standing firm in the Lord. By holding fast to Jesus, holding fast to the reality of the gospel, and holding fast to the understanding that you have been reconciled as sinners now made children to God. You will have peace if you hold fast to those truths. And as they do this, they are going to have a supernatural kind of peace, which leads us to our first point, peace in our church, which I think we find in verses 2 and 3. Now, obviously, within the context of this passage, there is some form of disagreement, some sort of conflict that is going on with a couple of women in the church. And regardless of what it was over, it was obviously a very significant and a pretty sharp disagreement. So much so that word had gotten back to Paul about this disagreement between these two ladies. And Paul is saying to these two ladies, stand firm in the Lord, and the result of that ought to be peace between not just these two women, but the whole church. Between our brothers and sisters, as we hold fast to the Lord, there ought to be a particular kind of peace. While we stand in faith in Jesus, there is most surely peace between us and God. I want to say that again. Whenever we stand in Christ, there is most surely peace between us and God. But the byproduct, the result of that is gospel peace between us and our brothers and sisters in whatever local fellowship we are a part of. And it's especially to be evident within the local church. This is why we have church membership, is so that we can show that gospel peace that has been given to us in an intentional way. And within these two verses, I think Paul gives us two ways that we can see peace in our church. And I think the first is by agreeing in the Lord, which is in verse 2. 
Whatever was going on between Yodia and Syntyche, it was a really big deal. I, I think so. I think if he had to basically say, hey, you two need to work this out, it, it must have been a big deal. And given that Paul has already emphasized so much that this church should be unified by having the mind of Jesus, it's not surprising then that he addresses this particular topic head on. The whole purpose, I would say, even of chapter 2, is that they need to be unified. There's going to be so many things, different, different trials, different sufferings coming at them, and they need to be unified in that. They don't need to be fighting each other while the world fights against them. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us that he calls out a couple of members that aren't in unity at this point. Friends, I, I think we should take note of this. A disagreement between members of a church body not only threatens the unity of the church, but it ultimately threatens the witness that we have of proclaiming that we stand in the Lord. It threatens the unity of the church and our confession that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior whenever we have a disagreement like one that was going on here in our text. In many ways, I think this situation that's going on, it's like the game of Jenga. All of us are like those little blocks in Jenga. We're built up in the Lord, put together to be this living representation of God's unity. And as the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Peter says, we are built upon this cornerstone and we're built up into him. But a disagreement here and there is like pulling a block out and putting it somewhere else. And eventually you do that so much and it gets toward the end of that Jenga game and you see that tower is starting to wobble a little bit. And I think that's what's going on here. We see here that there is a potential threat for this church to crumble. Ultimately, we know that no matter what, if Christ is the cornerstone, that tower is not going to fall. But we've seen many local churches, not eternal, one church, right, that we're going to see in the future. We've seen those divide. We've seen those fall. And they often come from things like what's going on in verses 2 and 3. And he tells them, he tells them to agree in the Lord. This is how you will solve that teeter-tottering of the tower. Agree in the Lord. He doesn't say go lock them in a room until they work it out or have some sort of church vote and we're going to take sides and whoever has the most side right, that's who's going to win. That's not what he's saying at all. Instead, he addresses the individuals to agree in the Lord. Agree in the one thing that ultimately unites you. The wording here in the Greek is actually really interesting. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he says that the church is to be of one mind, having the same mind, right, is what he says in uh, verse 2 of chapter 2. And ultimately, what he's doing here is a play on words that whenever these two women are to agree on the Lord, they are showing that same mind that Paul was getting at in chapter 2. It's a clear instruction from chapter 2, a clear application that they ought to let go of their self-regard. They ought to die to that for the sake of the unity of church. They ought to die their own wants or their own selfish desires for the sake of the church. I wonder, brothers and sisters, I wonder if that's our default here as well at South Canyon. To remember that we have Jesus and we have the gospel in common and to agree on that more than holding on to any menial position or any trivial uh, disagreement. When we feel wronged by another member or if one of us does not do something that we ought to be doing, you think in your mind, do you immediately become angry? Is that your default? Do you think the worst of that person? Or do you remember and say, 
I actually, I, I agree in the Lord with him. I believe in the same gospel with him. When the budget gets presented here in a couple of weeks, and you see a line item increase or de- decrease on certain things that maybe you're really passionate about, is your instinct going to be casting judgment on that team that worked on that budget? Or are you going to agree in the Lord? I know that for me as a pastor, I need this mentality massaged in my heart day after day after day. I've messed up in this area, and I need others to point that out to me, that I often don't always think that I need to agree in the Lord with him. I get really passionate about the position that I'm holding. But luckily, the Lord gives us others to open our eyes that we need to agree in the Lord, which I think is the second way that we can have peace in our church, which is by helping one another, by helping one another, which we see in verse 3. Knowing that agreeing in the Lord will be a hard task, Paul tasks others within the church and tells them to help and to reason with these two women for the task of ultimately agreeing in the Lord. He calls on others to say, hey, help these ladies out. As I alluded to earlier, I think Paul knows that this disagreement, it could affect others in the church and it could potentially cause them to be tempted, to be partial and to take sides and that would ultimately split the church. So Paul calls on others in the church to help these women who have labored in the gospel with him to bring the very church that they are a part of to bear. He tells them, I need your help to help these women agree in the Lord. I think this is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 18 when he said that if you are in conflict or if you have some tension with a brother and sister, you go to them individually. But I think what we're seeing here is that second part of that instruction in Matthew 18, that if you cannot get reconciled with that brother and sister, just you and that individual, what you need to do is bring two or three others with you. Friends, sometimes we need a little help and a little outside perspective to agree in the Lord. Sometimes we put the blinders on whenever we hold fast to our position. But I think it's as if Paul is saying here, hey, my friends, help these ladies. They mean so much to me. They've been in ministry with me and with Clement from the very early stages of this church. Help them reconcile. Help them agree in the Lord. Please help them. And it seems that Paul roots this exhortation to Yodia, to Syntyche, and to everyone in the church in Philippi in the fact that they will all be together in eternity. Read with me verse 2 real quickly. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Friends, it is Paul's anticipation that these women will be with those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. They will be in heaven with all Christians. That's his anticipation. And I wonder, friends, then how often for us do we whenever we disagree with the person, a brother or sister, maybe on a theological topic or on something else, that we immediately assume, hey, they aren't Christian. Paul is almost having to remind these brothers and sisters at this church, remember these women, their names are in the book of life. They will be with us in eternity. I I know that's particularly tempting right now to argue and to, and to have conflict and to divide over so many secondary and so many non-gospel issues. I know it's really tempting to do that. It's easy to disagree over things like predestination and free will. It's, it's, it's easy to disagree over 
homeschooling or private schooling or public schooling or pick your party of choice. There's so many things that we can disagree on that are not gospel issues, not primary. We can get heated about those things. But brothers and sisters, when we are tempted to disagree and to disagree sharply and bitterly with sinful emotions and sinful feelings, we need to stop, take a moment, and remember to agree in the Lord because there will one day be a day where we see those brothers and sisters who we have such a sharp disagreement on. We are going to see them in resurrection. We will see them in perfection as God intended to see them. Friends, remember that whenever we get into a disagreement. And friends, those issues that we place so much weight and emotion on, those things that we care about so much, they will grow strangely dim in the face of Jesus. Agree in the Lord. And yet, it's hard to remember our sure future, to remember the future of those who have faith in Jesus in the midst of so many trials in the midst of so many potential sufferings, which is why we need to continue to stand firm in the Lord as he gives us peace in the next place that we see in verses 4 through 7, which is peace in our worry. Peace in our worry. So Paul, this exhortation to reconcile with others, to have unity, that's a good thing. But hey, what about me? I've got so many external problems. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about that. There are so many things that I'm worried about that aren't in the church that I'm I'm really anxious about. What do I do when things aren't causing me peace that aren't from the church but from the outside world? What do I do when I'm worried about world events and about potential persecution? What do I do with so on and so forth? Well, what do we do? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think what we see here is just a litany of instructions and a litany of resources that we ought to turn to if we have worry in our lives. If we stand firm in the Lord, this is the kind of peace that we can have peace in our worry, but there's some specifics that he gets into beginning in verse 4. And I think the first way that we have peace in our worry is by rejoicing, which we see in verse 4. I think in many ways, Paul again is picking up on the idea that he placed out in chapter 1. He rejoices even at the prospect of further persecution and potential death because Paul has Jesus. And this is what he wants them to remember as well. Hey, Philippian church, you have everything you need in Jesus. He wanted to show them this is ultimately where your hope should lie. Rejoice in that. And again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. I talked about this a few weeks ago that Paul had this strange joy in the middle of trials and in the middle of these circumstances that he found himself in under the imprisonment. And now he exhorts this church to rejoice in those same kind of trials and those same kind of sufferings that are coming at them. Friends, are you worried? Truly, are you worried? Paul's instruction to you then is rejoice in the Lord. And again, I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Friends, there is a wellspring of hope and peace that is in Jesus for those who trust in him. It's a recognition of knowing that you are loved and you are held fast by the God of the universe and that no matter what, 
as you have faith in Jesus Christ, nothing about that will change. He will always love you. He will always hold fast to you. The waves of sorrow may rise. The floods of persecution may come. But we can rejoice because we are loved by God. And it's often in those trials and circumstances that the Lord uses those things to create godly characteristics in us. He uses those things to make us look more like Jesus. And I think this shows us the second way that we can have peace in our worry, which is by being reasonable or gentle, which we find in verse 5. Being reasonable or gentle. Paul then tells them, now in light of this great joy that you can have in the Lord, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word reasonableness, and I'm sure that many of you in your footnotes uh, see that it can also be translated as gentleness. But in the Greek, it is literally translated as the forbearing spirit you have, let all know of it. The forbearing spirit you all have, if you are in Christ, let everyone know about it. There is a calmness and a placidness that comes from being in Christ. Friend, would that describe you if, if you're a brother and sister in Christ? That there is a placidness, a calmness to you because you know the Lord? And Paul goes on even further to say that the Lord is at hand. Or maybe a better way of saying this, the Lord is coming back soon. And because he's coming back soon, you can endure whatever you're going through at this very moment. You can endure it with the spirit of patience, with the spirit of forbearing that will be seen by everyone, by the Christian and the non-Christian alike. It's not surprising that we see Paul go back to this idea of future events that are going to happen for the believer. It's something that I think really comforts Paul in his current stay in imprisonment, thinking about his sure eternity with the Lord. And I think that's something he wants the believers in Philippi and for us as well to think about. I think we see here this illusion that there's going to be a day that the Lord is coming back for us. And because we know that, we can rest in knowing that we can endure in all things. You can endure whatever you're going through because the Lord is coming back for you, friends. Your outcome is sure. The prize is final for you. You know what's going to happen to you. You may die, you may be persecuted, but guess what? You will one day be with the Lord. So have a forbearing, a patient spirit that will be seen by all. I think what we see here, again, is this, this idea that, this illusion that Paul is making again to a runner, to a marathon runner. There's a prize for the Christian. It's sure and unfading. And friends, while your legs may grow weak and your brain may get tired and you may have to be taking step after step after step in running this race for Christ, the prize will not change. The outcome is sure for you. You will finish the race, friends, and you will win the prize of being with the Lord in eternity. That is how you can have peace in your worry. I think it's interesting that Paul says that this kind of reasonableness or this kind of gentleness is to be known by everyone. It's to be known by the Christian and the non-Christian alike. That because you rest in the Lord, you can be reasonable and gentle. I wonder, friends, if that's true for you and me as well. When something happens in our lives that would cause most to despair, do you instead show trust in the Lord? I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have feelings and to, to act out on those feelings. That's a very real and human thing that we do. But friends, whenever you despair, do you show a reasonableness, a gentleness, a forbearing spirit in knowing 
that you will one day be with the Lord. When others mock and abuse you for your faith, do you seek to battle online with those people and wage war and, and, and make sure that your position is correct? Or do you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing that while others may mock and abuse you for the faith that you have, that they did the same thing to our Lord and Savior, and that he promised the same thing might happen to you as well? When the prospect of a dating relationship seems to go down the drain, do you sulk into feelings of feeling unloved and despair? Or do you remind yourself that the greatest love you can ever have and you can ever know is found in Christ Jesus? Brothers and sisters, this world is watching us to see how we respond to the various events, the various circumstances, to the various trials of our lives. Will you let your reasonableness be seen and be known by all? Another way that we have peace in our worry is by praying, which we see in verse 6. By praying. Before Paul gives the instruction for how they can have peace by praying, he first gives them the negative instruction. He says, do not be anxious. And I think the anxiety that he is talking about here within this context is this kind of anxiety that comes from constantly fixating on the potential bad outcomes to them, the bad outcomes that could happen to them as they think about living with future persecution and future suffering. But this is understandable. And Paul has already reminded believers here that the Lord holds them fast. Those things may come, but the Lord is going to hold you fast through all of it, and he will help you endure. And he's promised an eternity and glory with them. Friends, we have so many different things coming at us. It may not be Rome like it was for the Philippian church, but you can list several things that I'm sure that you're anxious about even right now. I hope I do okay with my finals. Are we saving enough for retirement? I wonder, wonder if the Oklahoma State Cowboys are going to win the Big 12 championship this year. There's so many things I could be fixating and be worried about. I wonder if that pathology report is going to come back okay. There are myriads upon myriads of things we can worry about. And yet Paul echoes the words of our Lord and Savior. He says, do not be anxious. Now while I can understand and I can sympathize the biological and chemical imbalances that happen in some of us that make us predisposed to anxiety... I want to reiterate that I believe that the kind of anxiety, the kind of worry that Paul is talking about here is one that can be controlled by the Christian. One that can be reconciled in Christ Jesus. So how do we do that, Paul? How do we reconcile all of my worries, all of my doubts, all of everything in Christ? Well, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Friends, we overcome this type of worry by talking to God. We come to him in prayer. We go to him in everything. When Paul says everything here in the Greek, Tanner's favorite joke here, that literally translates into everything. Are you worried about a test? Go tell God about it. Are you frustrated because your children are not doing what you want them to do and they won't go to bed for some reason? Tell God you need a little extra ounce of patience with them so that you can have peace and calmness in that situation. Are you concerned if there's going to be that somebody out there for you to marry? Friends, go and talk to God about it. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and sorrows to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Friends, if you are worried, go to Jesus. He invites you in. A text like this tells us that not only can we come to God, 
but we can come to God because he cares. I don't think Paul would have said come to God with, in everything with prayer if God didn't really care about it. Friends, God loves his children and he desires to hear from them. I want to say that again. God loves his children and he desires from, to hear from them. Let that sink in. The God of the universe wants to hear from you. While so many other pagan religions say you need to clean yourself up and you have a mess and you need to clean yourself up before you go and talk to him, remember that God invites you in faith to talk to him about everything. All we need to do is come to him in prayer. I think this is why Paul says we ought to come to God in prayer with thanksgiving. Because we can tell him everything, we ought to thank him that he would even listen to everything that we have to say. The God of the universe hears our prayers. Thank him for hearing those prayers and answering those in his sovereignty. Thank him for listening to your prayers, even when you know you've prayed with a bad and sinful and messed up heart. Thank, thank him for hearing you despite that. And especially thank him for Jesus and for what he's done in your life for saving you. Thank him because he's done a great work of salvation in you. Which brings us to the last way that we have peace in our worry which is by resting, by resting. And I think ultimately by resting in our salvation. It appears verse 7 serves as a concluding point to the section of verses 4 through 7 for Paul. This is the summation of rejoicing in the Lord. This is the summation of being reasonable and of praying. It's peace. But I think there's much more to that for Paul. It's not just a mental assent to say, I will be peaceful. I don't think it's a mental clarity or anything like that or a solace of of saying, now if I'm reasonable and if I pray, therefore I will be peaceful. That's not what he's getting at at all. I think what Paul is getting at here is a supernatural kind of peace. A peace that we cannot work for or come up with on our own. One that we can't just produce. Paul says that God will give us a supernatural peace that surpasses even our own understanding. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from himself. In the hardest of circumstances and the most difficult of trials, the peace of God that comes from his spirit, it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, we've probably heard so many times of people being martyred, people being persecuted, and looking at that situation, that trial, that suffering in the face, and having total trust in the Lord. I can tell you that doesn't come just by simply praying and being reasonable. That comes from the Lord in his hand. This peace, my friends, is resting. It's resting in knowing that you are forgiven by God in Jesus. It is peace that says, I'm no longer an enemy of God. I am a redeemed saint. I'm no longer a slave to my own worry, to my own fear. I am a child of God. It is peace that comes from knowing that your status in Jesus' kingdom is sure. You are his child and he will never let you go. And this peace will guard your heart and mind when you want to slip away from Jesus. Paul himself was well acquainted with what following Jesus would cost. I'm sure, maybe if it's not expressly written, I'm sure after so many persecutions, so many bad things happening to him, I wonder every once in a while if there was a little thought in his mind of like, is this really worth it? And while Paul knows what that cost of following Jesus, he wants this church to know that yes, it is. Because Paul is a testament of God keeping him throughout all those trials, all those sufferings, all that persecution. God has kept them. 
While they may not be able to keep their hold of Christ, Jesus will keep hold of them, friend, and he will keep hold of you. Remember that this morning. This peace is what would help them through what they may face in the future and what would surely come for them. It's not hard to think of this kind of peace and to think of uh, a brother by the name of Horatio Spafford, the writer of the famous hymn, It Is Well. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story, but his life was one of great tragedy. He lost a child to scarlet fever and saw many in the city of Chicago where he lived die because of a massive fire in 1871. And I think the story that probably most of us know, which is when he would take a holiday with his wife and his four children, and he would send them ahead on a ship to England, and it included his wife, Anna, their four remaining children, all daughters, 11-year-old, excuse me, 11-year-old Anna, 9-year-old Margaret Lee, 5-year-old Elizabeth, 2-year-old Tanetta. All his daughters would die in 1873 as a result of another boat striking their boat on their way to England. And somehow, his wife survived. He would go on to pin the words of, It is well. And you can almost hear the progression of his thoughts as he wrote them. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well. It's well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to a cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Friends, Do you see the peace that Mr. Spafford had through all those trials? It was peace that ultimately he knew that he was forgiven in Christ and his sin was taken care of. He could have so much peace in tragedy because he had ultimate peace with God. This is peace that we can have today in our worry if we are in Christ. Friend, if you are in Christ, you can have that same kind of supernatural peace. What great news. To my unbelieving friend, I wonder if you're here today with any sort of peace in your life. Or actually, I wonder if your life is totally full of chaos. There's good news for you. And I think this is what Paul is getting at. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. I'm not promising you that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, that all of a sudden you're going to have this amazing earthly peace. I'm not promising that at all. But what I am telling you is that there is a peace that surpasses all understanding, all knowledge that is in Christ Jesus, of knowing that we are forgiven in Christ by Jesus. Friend, will you rest in that truth today? Come and find me. Come and find one of the elders after the service, and we would love to tell you about how you can attain, how you can have that peace that surpasses all understanding. The last area that Paul tells us we can have peace as we stand firm in the Lord, which I think is in verses 8 through 9, peace in our minds. Peace in our minds. I think as we look at these last two verses, we can see ultimately two ways how we have peace in our minds. And I think the first is, it's not so ironically as we were thinking about our minds, is by thinking. By thinking, which we see in verse 8. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, what is, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
What a list, right? What a list of things that the Christian is to have occupying their mind. I'm not sure about you, but even in our prayer of confession this morning, as Brother Ken was praying, I was reminded of the many ways that I do not think of that list of things that Paul talks about here. And if I'm really honest, I probably spend a lot more time thinking and dwelling and occupying my mind with things that are exactly the opposite of what's on that list. I'm convicted by that. And I think that a text like this is meant to do exactly that. It's meant to pierce our hearts. And it's piercing our hearts to cause us to conform and to instead of thinking on the things that are trivial, that are menial, to think on those things that he lists here. Maybe a good exercise for us is to maybe run through our day and determine, hey, as I look at this list, have I seen any of these things that have come as a result from the Lord's hand? Do I see any of those things in my day? But when I run down that list, when I'm thinking about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, so on and so forth, there's not something that just pops into my mind all the time that fits all those categories. This isn't a light task. And if we think about it in the context of Philippi, the city, the culture they are living in, it's not necessarily lending its hand into them thinking about that either. So, with all the different lewdness, all the different sensuality that was going on around them and going on for us, what or who ought we to think about whenever we think about that list of things? Who can we think about that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise? Who can we think about? We answer that in God's sovereignty in a song this morning. Is anyone worthy? He is. Jesus is. And I pray, friends, that as we proclaimed this morning, that as you walk and think on things, that you will ultimately draw your mind back to Christ Jesus. And whenever Paul says, if there's anything worthy, you automatically think to Jesus Christ first. Last point. Not only should we think of these things, which I believe are ultimately alluding to Jesus, but as Paul taught the believers there those things, he tells them now that they can stand firm and have peace by practicing all these things that he's mentioned. So practicing, verse 9. In a sense, he's telling them to practice in their lives what Christ would have practiced. If that list of things is meant to draw your mind to Christ, and he says in verse 9 to practice all those things, so it's think about Jesus, live like Jesus. That's what you're supposed to do. The call for the Christian and for the church is to not just laud and thinking and knowing all these things about Jesus, but to also do what he did. That old 90s wrist bracelet, I don't know if any of you have it anymore, but that wrist bracelet that said WWJD, I think Paul would have been a huge fan of. For us as a church, this must be central to our ministry as well. What would Jesus want us to do? Practicing what Jesus would have displayed in his life would be essential for the Philippian church, and it's essential for our church as well. As one pastor place, we ought to live in an incarnational manner, bringing the very life of Jesus with our words, our actions, and our deeds. Living this way, friends, as a church, living in a way that Jesus would, it might cost us. Some will accuse us of being narrow-minded and bigoted and legalistic. Others, perhaps, will say we're too loose and we're making God's grace too cheap for sinners. What I say to that is amen and let it be so. 
But as Paul wraps up this section, he says that as you practice and as you work out living and displaying Christ, the end result, what will it be that he says in verse 9? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. There will be peace for those who think and practice and live as Jesus did. So brothers and sisters, while it's going to be tempting, tempting to want to be riled up and to take action for our cause, stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel and God will give you and me peace. Stand firm when the world tells you it's better to be divided than to unite and have peace in your church. Stand firm when a world of worries presses on you and you want to give way to those pressures. Stand firm when in your heart and in your mind it is easier to live and think like the world instead of Jesus. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Stand firm thus in the Lord, and he will give you peace. Let's pray. Father, we are so taken aback at the fact that we can have peace. But Father, the way that you want us to gain peace seems so counterintuitive. So Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit this morning would help us to have peace. And Father, as my mind thinks about a song that says that we can have peace in God, we know that peace is a promise you keep. So Father, help us to have peace in Jesus Christ and help us to ultimately rest in knowing that we are forgiven and that now we can live lives in light of that peace. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.